Mark 7, verses 24 through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This morning, as you keep your Bibles open, we have this short and powerful passage before us this morning uh, from Mark chapter 7, and uh, Wayne did a great job of uh, looking at his phonetics to nail Syrophoenician, and uh, we're going to pay attention to a a woman that uh, astounds us uh, this morning. And uh, really, she begs us to ask this question as we look at this passage this morning. How do we come to God with our need? How, what is the nature of our approach to God? How do we approach him? Matthew, Jesus speaking to this very point at the beginning, uh, Jesus in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter five, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks to this. He says, blessed are, now I'm listening, right? If Jesus tells me that there's this, group of people that are blessed, I want to know who the group of people are that are blessed by the holy God of the universe. Okay? Are you listening? Does it it have your attention as well? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So evidently, there's something about an approach to God that poverty of spirit captures the nature of that approach. How do we come to God with our need? We come to God with poverty of spirit. Our passage this morning gives us a concrete example of a woman, specifically a mother, coming to the Lord with nothing to commend her to the Lord but her need. She's there for one reason, need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the transparency, the the validity of your word that comes through with how it rings with a clarity and a truthfulness. Lord, I pray that this morning it would ring into our hearts. There are everyone here, whether they know it or not, all of us are in a position of need. Some of us come we know our need. I pray that you would hold out the faith before us in this woman and in Jesus's incredible work with her to hold out for us what it looks like to be recipients of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for these things because we expect you to do this by your word and spirit this morning in our midst. In Jesus' name. 
Amen. We have in this passage an encounter in a pagan land. We see that right away at the beginning of our passage. Look at verse 24 with me. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, these are names of cities in this region that we should be familiar with if we're familiar with the context of the Old Testament and the context of Israel and the surrounding region. Jesus has been in the Gospel of Mark in Galilee throughout most of the episodes of Mark, this northern region of Israel. And now we see him move about 25 miles north and west to the cities of Tyre and Sidon. You can actually go and you can Google Tyre. It's not going to be spelled quite that way, but you're going to see it right there in Lebanon, 25 miles northeast of where Jesus would have been there by the Sea of Galilee. This is well outside the territory of Israel, though it's only 25 miles. We've left behind any semblance of the worship of the one true God of Israel. It's an area that's notorious for its paganism and for its specifically its military opposition to Israel in recent centuries in which Jesus was living. What in the world is Jesus doing there? All right? I'm sure that many of the contemporaries would have asked exactly the same question. The fact is, the passage doesn't tell us why he went there. So let's skip over that. And um, no, let, let, we have a couple questions to ask. What, what is Jesus doing here in Tyre and Sidon, in this region? He's not on an evangel evangelistic mission. He went there, and he's making sure that he's not telling anybody about it. He seems to be going incognito. Jesus is adamant a number of times that he is not on a mission to the Gentiles. That he is on a mission to perform and to proclaim the gospel. And he's to do so among the people of Israel out from whom the gospel would go to all of the ends of the earth. We do know a few things. We know that Jesus, in our passage, and as we've been working our way through Mark in these first seven chapters, that he's been pursued by a variety of undesirable elements. We know that he's been pursued by mobs who are seeking a political solution to their problems. We know that Jesus is being pursued by religious leaders who are seeking to entrap him and ultimately to kill him. And we also know that he's being perhaps pursued by Herod who thought that Jesus was some sort of supernatural retribution for John the Baptist. And he was in constant danger from these three sources. And that's besides just the mob that were following after, the, after Jesus to meet all of their physical needs. I mean, he just fed 5,000 men. All right? If you hear that there's a gigantic food distribution coming from one single man, there might be even more mobs coming after him. And Jesus is again, we've seen him do this a number of times, it appears that he's seeking some relief and distance from these variety of mobs that are pressing upon him. Perhaps you could even say that Jesus is again seeking a bit of rest by going to the one place a Messiah would never go, Tyre and Sidon. And when Jesus goes there, he's getting away from all the people, what does he get? He gets what he gets in every single place that he goes to go and find rest, right? 
we see that Jesus, he entered the house in verse 24 and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. You just pause on that sentence. You could preach a, a whole sermon right there in that passage. Jesus just can't be hidden. He can't hide himself. It's not his purpose ultimately, but rather to shine and be known. And he can't be hidden in this city, even in this pagan city. But immediately, the Holy Spirit evidently has gone before and news of Jesus' miraculous character has traveled 25 miles even into the pagan lands. In verse 25, it says, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him, and came and fell down at his feet. There she is. Jesus, seeking to get away from the mobs, is now mobbed, begged, by a mother of a little girl who had a demon. Jesus' attempt at a retreat was again thwarted. The woman comes, she falls down at the feet of Jesus. And let's be clear, Jesus was ritually unclean just to be talking to this woman. He had a, a Messiah, a rabbi, has no business interfacing with a Gentile, a Syrophoenician woman. She was a Gentile. She was a Greek. That is that she belongs to a region of the world that had been conquered by Alexander the Great and the Greek language and culture had invaded and transformed the whole of the region, certainly the region that she was from, even though she was from a Syrian Phoenician culture. That Syrio-Phoenician culture had been invaded by the Greek culture and transformed into this new sort of Mediterranean thing. And here, this woman comes and falls down at Jesus' feet. She is no Israelite. You can describe her with a lot of cultures, a lot of heritages, a lot of beliefs, a lot of languages and systems. But one of the things that you would not say is that she is an Israelite that she's part of the children of God. You see, the clean Israelites, for those of you who were with us last week, James held this out for us as he worked his way through our passage in chapter seven. The clean Israelites of the previous passage had failed to recognize Jesus and failed to fall in with the teaching of the gospel of the kingdom that he came to proclaim. But here, this unclean woman literally, physically fell at the feet of Jesus and began to beg of him. There's something Mark's doing in this passage by placing this here for us to see. It's a significant passage because Mark chose to put this passage in this context. Let's remember the gospel writers are telling a story for us. Let's remember that the, the book of Mark winds up going to the Christians in Rome. Rome is no Jerusalem, friends. What in the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ going to Rome? Well, what in the world is a Syrophoenician woman doing falling down at the feet of Jesus? What an encouragement the first readers of this passage must have found. Surely they identified a little bit with this story falling at the feet of of Jesus, where the leaders of Israel were asserting themselves. What were they asserting? They were asserting their, their self-righteousness. 
The, the leaders of Israel were coming to Jesus and they were asserting the traditions of the elders and the traditions of men and failing to submit to the teachings of Jesus. But this desperate mother living in a pagan land didn't assert anything but need, right? She doesn't come in and say, Jesus, I've heard about you and I've heard about your religion. I want you to know we're not terribly incompatible and I just want to offer that there's a way we could work on this if you could only. Do you see? This isn't a negotiation process. This is absolute poverty and need before Jesus. A desperate mother in a pagan land at the feet of Jesus. There's a parallel account. In Matthew chapter 15, I would encourage you to take a peek at it. One of the things, actually really most of the passages we've been studying have parallel accounts in Matthew, Mark, or John, or in Matthew, Luke, or John. But one of the things we don't do a whole lot is go to those parallel accounts. And there's a reason why. Is we're not studying the, the Gospels all together and interwoven, we want to make sure that we give Mark his opportunity to tell the story that he is telling inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay? But there are a couple details in this account that I think are extremely helpful for us. Mar Matthew says a strong, powerful, difficult word about Jesus' response to this begging mother. What do you do when someone's begging, crying for their little daughter? What should you do? Ma Matthew 15, 23 but he did not answer her a word. Okay, that's what you don't do. All right, if you were wondering like what, what it is that you do in this particular circumstance, that's what you don't do. That's the last thing I would expect from Jesus who had compassion on the crowds and fed them. How's that for gentle and lowly? As long as we're reading a book, I'm sure there's a chapter in the book Gentle and Lowly that covers this, right? That doesn't seem gentle at all. What's Jesus doing? It reminds me of Jesus' response to the disciples in the boat. What does he do in their desperation and fear of death? Sleeps. Sleeps. What's Jesus doing in these instances where, where really we ought to not only expect but perhaps even demand some other response? The disciples certainly demanded another, another response. Jesus, don't you care? They told him in the boat. The, Jesus is, the, the woman's coming and begging doesn't look to be a quick little episode. She doesn't just march in, beg, Jesus doesn't respond, and then they have this little interchange. This seems to be something that had been happening over some period of time, and Jesus is silent. It appears that she was in the room, perhaps following Jesus to this place over the course of an extended time. We've seen Jesus ex extend compassion. We've seen him extend love. But Jesus is doing something different here. So we ought to pay close attention because the plot is about to thicken in our own passage in the Gospel of Mark. Look at verse 27 with me. It's about to get real here. Look. He spoke. Okay, here comes the words of compassion. Phew. Let the children be fed first, were his words. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, 
Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Friends, that I didn't expect Jesus to be silent in Matthew. When he broke his silence, that is not the words that I was waiting for. I wonder if it was the words that she was waiting for. She was certainly ready with a response. What were the disciples thinking when they saw what happened here? This is brutal. It makes your jaw sort of drop when you hear the words out of Jesus. Jesus, it's a mom. What are you saying? She's just hurting because of her daughter. Context. This is so important. When we hear the teachings of Jesus and the happenings of Jesus, Context is so important. We are right to say, did it really go down like that? Did I hear the right tone in his voice when I read what was happening here? One of the reasons I say that is this. When we're reading the gospel accounts, they're not always trying to communicate some tone of Jesus. They're communicating something that the context itself is communicating for us. It's why we need to hear this text within the context of the book of Mark. Mark is making a specific point in the text, and he's not making a point about the gentle and lowly nature of Jesus. It's not the point he's trying to make. He's trying to draw a contrast between the unbelief in Israel and the belief in this woman who comes humbly before her Messiah. He's not giving us all the details of of the account. Matthew tells a story. He tells the same story, and he has a different emphasis in telling us the story. And he does get into some of the compassion, as we'll see in just a moment. But Mark is making a particular point, so he's going to leave out some of the specifics that might make us see what really went down in that room that day. Mark is essentially saying the clean Israelites supposedly Self-righteous, clean Israelites in the previous passage had failed to recognize Jesus. But this unclean woman fell in respect and need. Consider that the religious leaders in their self-righteousness had no business with Jesus except for to rebuke him. When they interacted with Jesus, their primary activity, the primary interchange between the the self-righteous religious leaders... And Jesus was that of rebuke. And then consider this mother in her need. And she had no business with Jesus except his power to save. That's the point that Mark is making in this passage. And all the other details are just details. Do we hear that point? This is the point of Mark. And it's the reason he records it for us and gives us the particular details that he does. I know that you and I are left with a lot of questions about the nature of Jesus in Mark's account, but Mark is telling us a story in a relatively detached way so that we could see our need before the Redeemer. Matthew does give us a little more perspective. I do want us to go over there, and I want us to see something profound in this passage. In Matthew... Near the end of the account, Jesus says this to the woman. O woman, great is your faith. The translator renders an exclamation point at the end of that phrase. O woman, great is your faith. What's the tone there? 
A number of commentators, as I read through this passage and studied it this week, suggested that Jesus was delighted by her faith. Elsewhere, Jesus, we find him amazed at faithlessness, right? In his hometown, here he is delighted with this mother's faith. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. The Lord Jesus was charmed with this fair jewel of this woman's faith. He saw something, and he examined it closely. Watching it and delighting in it, he resolved to turn it round and set it in other lights. That the various facets of this priceless diamond that is faith might each one flash its brilliance and delight the soul. I hope that by looking at this woman's faith in its various facets as we see them in Matthew and Mark, you and I also can come to delight in the beauty of faith. Something that we need to remember about Jesus in all of his encounters with all these people that he heals, with all these people that he saves, with all these instances where he's casting out demons, is he does so much more than that. Let's remember that he's always doing more than healing and saving. What Jesus is doing, his business, is he's making disciples, okay? He's making disciples. He's, as we said a few weeks ago, he's tutoring faith. We saw this a few weeks ago when we saw him heal the woman with the issue of blood. He could have just healed her. She was already healed and he could have kept walking, right? All she needed to do is touch the hem of his cloak. But he turns around and he says, no, it's not what I'm here for. I'm here to make disciples. And he calls her out. And he's basically saying, faith doesn't hide in the shadows and get what it wants. Faith steps forward and names the Christ and is brought out by the Christ. And he turns that faith around. She had faith. She already had faith. But Jesus, in calling her to himself, he transforms that faith. And he shows her the nature of the faith that she has. I think he's doing the same thing right here. To make disciples, Jesus must foster faith. He's showing the woman her own faith. She has faith. That's why she's begging. And then he says, let me take that It's not going to feel particularly good, and it's going to be difficult to watch. But let me take this faith that's on the floor in front of me, and I'm going to lift it up. I'm going to do some things with it. I'm going to bless this woman in the midst of the trial of these few moments. And she's going to leave here not just with a daughter that's well. She's going to leave here with a redeemer. That's the kindness of our God and what he does in this moment. He tests her faith. And in testing her faith, he makes it pure. The woman only knew two things. When she walked in the room, she knew that she had a need and that the Lord is able. Friends, when she enters the room, she enters with the essential elements of mustard seed faith. Do you see it? The essential elements of the smallest of faith, need, and a redeemer a recognition of need and an orientation to the Savior. Friends, this is the rock bottom of faith, but it is the essential core of faith. And he lifts up that rock bottom of faith and makes it shine. 
Consider every person to whom Jesus poses a question in Scripture. Think about it. How many times? Jesus is the master question asker. Really, all the teachers in history who are the master teachers are master question askers. And when Jesus asks a question throughout the Scriptures, what sort of response does he typically get? Typically silence. Typically, they're dumbfounded. They often leave without saying a word because they're stumped by their own self-righteousness. They want to assert their self-righteousness, but the, the question doesn't let them, and that's all that they had, so they had to leave. And often, when he asks a question, in their self-righteousness, if they return, their answer is violence. Their answer is anger. Their answer is to put down this rabbi that would ask a question that questions their own self-righteousness. But this woman appears to catch Jesus in a trap. Honestly, I was thinking about this. Maybe you guys can think of a, of a time when someone gives a good answer to Jesus. This is, this is the only really good one that I could think of. It's what faith does. Faith lays hold of Jesus, lays hold of his word. Look at the parable again. Jesus absolutely intentionally leaves open his question. He leaves an opportunity for response. But if you're going to walk through the opportunity that his masterful question, his challenging question in the little parable that he told in the form of a question, if you're going to walk through that question and give a good answer, it's going to require humility. It's going to require faith to make it through the little hole that Jesus leaves open. When you come to Jesus with your need, let me ask you this. Are you willing to receive from him according to grace or are you only willing to receive according to your self-righteousness? When you come to Jesus with your need, are you willing to walk all the way as a person of dependence? Or are you looking for some place for your self-righteousness to stand? The exchange goes something like Jesus. this. Jesus says, there's food. It satisfies, but it's the master's business to dispense it as he pleases. And he dispenses it to his children. And this woman says, yes, and I'm willing to wait here as long as it may take for grace to come. And she waits. Jesus teed this question up, and this woman comes along, she knocks it out of the park. That's what humility does. That's the faith, what, what Jesus requires, the contact that is needed to take hold of grace is a humbled faith. What is Jesus saying by this parable? Here's what he's saying. He speaks of the children's bread, right? This is the blessing of redemption that belongs to the people of God, to Israel, to his chosen son that he rescued out of Egypt and he has given his word and that he's nurtured in his grace. In light of redemption history, salvation belongs to the people of Israel, called to the Lord. And then he speaks not only of the children's bread, but he speaks of that which is thrown to dogs. Let me say this up front. 
that the point that Jesus is making is that the blessings of redemption must first be given to the people of the old covenant. What Jesus is doing is he's holding out a parable. Some are like, man, he called her a dog. No, he didn't. He gave an illustration. You're allowed to do that. But it doesn't take away just how much this illustration bites. When someone gives an illustration, you never want to wind up being the dog of the story unless it's like Lassie. You know what I mean? But it is just an illustration. And it's an illustration of the order of priority of food in a household. This isn't a high pet culture that we're in here in Tyre or Sidon. Dogs were roaming scavengers in the wilderness and the outskirts of town. To call someone a dog or to even compare them to a dog in your little illustration was one of the most severe insults that you could give to a person. But the word that Jesus uses here is something of the diminutive form of the word dog. Let me be clear, it doesn't mean puppy. Because puppies grow up to be big dogs and big dogs were the scavengers on the edge of the city. But when he uses this smaller word of the word for dog, he's speaking of the common practice among particularly the wealthy to have small dogs or lap dogs that would roam the household or the palace. All right, this is in almost every single culture across the planet, these tiny little dogs that make their way around the home. Some of you are laughing because you've got them. I was going to make fun of Matt Helmenthaler. He's not here. He's got one of them little toy poodles. His name is Bimo. It's like this big. He can hold it in his hand like this. And, and evidently, that's not really calling someone a dog. I mean, is it really a dog? Um, I better stop. <laughs> All right, I'm going to get in trouble here. He's talking, I mean, those little dogs, they make their way around the table. When something falls, you don't have to vacuum. Isn't this great? It's a perfect arrangement. Jesus doesn't appear to be referring to mangy, dangerous dogs in the streets, but to the order of priority of food in a household. Let me give the illustration this way. Marcy Sproul speaks of his own house, and they have a dog. And in their house, they have three rules. You probably have a very similar set of three rules in your house. The first rule is this. No feeding the dog human food. All right? Hard and fast rule. No feeding the dog human food. But if you do feed the dog human food, rule number two kicks in. Don't feed the dog at the table. Never. But if you do feed the dog at the table, number three kicks in. Don't feed the dog at the table until after the meal and make sure it's on the floor. Friends, those are universal rules. All right, universal rules that are broken universally. All right, Jesus breaks it here, doesn't he? Satan has a word in Milton's Paradise Lost. And in Milton's Paradise Lost, he says this. Satan says, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Jesus is holding out before this woman an opportunity for a response. Oh, no, 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 no. I'd be a little dog, and I'll take the scraps, and I'll wait right here until the meal is over, and all the children are fed. I'll be a Syrophoenician. I'll be a Gentile. 
but I know that you're the one who saves. <laughs> That's us, friends. In hell, Satan will remain. But this woman, she looks at the master in the face and says, there's no hope for my child. And as Jesus draws her out, she's saying, there's no hope for me. But to be in your kingdom by whatever grace you may dispense to me. Friends, that, that is the only disposition of faith. And friends, there is not even an Israelite who had have some sort of claim to childhood in the kingdom who would enter but by this kind of faith. No one has their name on the table because they wrote it there. No one calls ahead and makes a reservation in the table of the kingdom of heaven. Everyone waits. And when the Lord writes down that name on that table setting, and when the Lord prepares a banquet of grace, friends, it's grace and grace alone. That is the testimony of faith. He's putting a beautiful frame around this woman's faith, and he's saying, do you see this? This is what faith looks like. And why does faith look like this? Because this is what grace looks like. Those who enter the kingdom of heaven must come like a Gentile mother. That's how we must come. I would offer to us three things to go with as a people of faith. That first of all, faith is persistent. This woman begged for help. She's persistent. She's like the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. She continually cried out, coming after the judge, give me justice against my adversary. The judge eventually gives her justice due to her persistence. She's going to stay begging at the feet of Jesus. The question at the end of the episode in Luke 18, when the widow is begging for help and relief, the question at the end of that is, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And the answer is, yes, he will. He's going to find faith in a Gentile, Greek, Syrophoenician mother. That's where he'll find it. In Matthew, in the parallel account in Matthew chapter 15, the disciples said, send her away for she's crying out after us. This mother's begging. She's following along. She has one thing, and it's a need, and her need has captured and taken hold of a redeemer. She's not going to let go. This mother is not asserting her dignity. She's not asserting anything but her need, not her right or her righteousness, only her need. Listen, persistence is not the demand of merit. Persistence isn't when you've gone along and you've recognized, I know how I can get God. Persistence is the desperation of need. I know who God is. He saves. He saves sinners. The psalmist often says it right. Psalmist 
In Psalm 51, 17, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. When it speaks of the sacrifices, when, when the people come before God through sacrifice, there is no way to come before the God of all of creation but through sacrifice. So in this repetitive coming to God, how do we come to God over and over again as begging broken spirits? A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you do not despise. He didn't despise her. He lifted her up as a model of faith for us today. Persistence. And secondly, humility. The, the mother doesn't bat an eye at Jesus' parable and the role she plays as a dog under the table. She doesn't miss a beat. She knows who the master is. You see, the, the essence of humility is, is humility knows who the master is. That humility knows where the merit is found. Humility knows who the actor in the sentence is. Humility knows that, that what it is to be the object of the sentence, not the master, not the subject of the sentence. In essence, she looks at the Lord of grace and says, I'll take the crumbs. And that phrase, I take the crumbs, is like, the woman who says, I'll just touch the cloak. I know re where redemption is found. And Jesus comes along and lifts up that faith. And he pours on lavish grace. Let me ask you this. When you come to Jesus, on what case, on what basis do you make your case? When you come to Jesus, what is your plea? Do you demand salvation? Do you demand redemption on the basis of your many years of service? How long have I, God, suffered for your sake? Or is it because you've obtained some degree of faithfulness, some degree of righteousness? Have you finally performed enough to merit the Lord's Supper today? Or do you come to him with need alone. God, I'm hungry. Do you have any food for me today? And the week, the answer week after week in our story, in our liturgy that we tell in our service week after week is there is food for the hungry. There's food for the hungry. The third thing that we see, and really it's it's per, all pervasive throughout the whole of the episode, is grace. This interaction between Jesus and this mother and the parable Jesus gives, tell, gives us a glimpse of a number of spiritual realities. So many things that we could see in this. But the most obvious is the power of Jesus to rescue the needy. Let's not forget the last sentence. And she went home and found the child in bed. And the demon called. Tell me there wasn't worship in that house. Did she assert her merits and say, yep, I knew it'd work. I knew if I just walked in there and, and told him what needed to happen. Oh, there's praise. There's gratitude that overflows into worship in that home on that day. Because grace worked. But we also see the priority of revelation. 
first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. For almost everyone in this room, we have a seat to sit in. And it's a then to the Gentiles seat. Do you rejoice? Do you rejoice that this Jewish rabbi who is God made flesh worked for us? Are we thankful that he chose out from among Israel 12 who would bear a message from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth? I give thanks to God's order of redemption history. If it, if it only comes to my ears, I'm thankful. Even if it comes like a crumb at the bottom of the table that, that lifts me into the position of child in the kingdom. This is the work of grace. Friends, we don't have crumbs. That's the whole point. We are in a position of need so that we would take crumbs. And then God lavishes a banquet feast of eternity. Ephesians chapter 1. Can't help but think of this passage. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 7 and 8. In him, the Christ, Jesus, the Redeemer, the one who gave himself as a sacrifice for sinners, which is your and my position, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. What is our role in this story? Trespassers. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished. I love that word. That's why I think about this passage all the time. Lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The master knows what he's doing. And what he's doing is lavishing grace on a people humbled and people in need. That's us. That's the gospel. Our role is to play that of one who is needy. Come. Heavenly Father, I pray for every heart in this room that we would see the lavish nature of your grace. The provision is so full for the children at the table that there's crumbs, there's leftovers, and we would be satisfied to eat of whatever may come, but you lift us up. And we remember in your word that it's not too far of a metaphor to call us dogs. What do you call us? A person who's given a beautiful new creation, rebels against the creator, and tries to make our own way in this world apart from you. A rebel? Or perhaps we should join the psalmist and the prophets in calling ourselves worms. God, we're nothing before this God. Before you. But your grace has taken those who apart from your grace are worms. Those who are apart from you are ravenous dogs on the edge of a city. Not playful, cute things even. And you have given us a seat 
in your kingdom, at your banquet table forever. God, I pray that we would celebrate this, that we would remember this, that we would rejoice in this glorious and lavish grace today. And for the one who is here, that is still in their rebellion, who has not confessed you, who is still fitting or raging or confused or tripped up, lacking understanding or lacking humility, I pray that you would do your work of grace, that you would give the gift of faith, and that heart would believe today. I thank you, God, that your grace is sufficient to save that one. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for your work in our hearts, in the hearts of those around us, in the hearts of those that you have given to us to go with this gospel to the ends of the earth and certainly to our workplaces and our communities. We pray that your word would be effective in all of these places as it was in that house on that day. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your good name. In the name of Jesus, amen.